Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Villanova English Department podcast. We've got something a little different and special this time. It is a reading that took place that was sponsored by the Creative Writing Program, and we'll be hearing poetry and prose from two professors at Villanova and from two students. So the professors are Searing Wangmo and Alan Drew, and the students are Jackie Carroll and Tia Parisi. If you are listening to this in the fall of 2020, you may want to stay tuned after the reading because there is some information about upcoming creative writing courses that are available. If you are listening to this at some other time or you are not uh, willing or able to take creative writing courses at Villanova, you may want to skip that part. But in any event, I hope you enjoy the reading and we'll see you again in two weeks. everybody. Um, welcome to this wonderful event. It's so exciting to see so many people. Yay. Um, this is our second uh, creative writing program reading um, where we feature Villanova faculty and students. I'm Lisa Sewell and I teach in the English department and in the creative writing program. And I just wanna say welcome and thank you so much for joining us at this crazy busy time in the semester. It's so great to see all of you. Um, so now I'm gonna to turn to what we're here for. Finally, I know you guys are like, when are we gonna to get to the reading? Um, so we're gonna start now. And um, I just, tonight we're gonna to have two creative writing faculty, Alan Drew and Sering Wangmo and two students, Jackie Carroll and Tia Parisi. Um, they're going to share their work. Each reading will last about 10 minutes um, and we'll jump back and forth between students and faculty readers. If you have any comments or questions, um, I hope you'll save them for the end. Um, after everyone's read, I'll open up the floor to questions. Um, you can post your questions in the chat um, if you're shy or you can ask them yourselves. Um, you can also use the chat to express enthusiasm. Um, you can also like snap and stuff like that or clap or use the little emoji thing to you know, clap. Um, expressing enthusiasm is encouraged um, all, all through the readings. Um, what else? Let's see. So I think that's all I need to tell you. Oh, I, again, if you want to, um, once we start re the readings, if you want to use the speaker view so that each reader will be featured, um, that's probably better than trying to search for them in a grid. Um, so um, we're going to start. I'll introduce each reader um, as, as they come up. Um, like I said, we're going to start with uh, Sering Wangmo. Uh, and Sering Wangmo Dumpa is the author of the poetry books, My Rice Takes Tastes Like the Lake, In the Absent Every Day, and Rules of the House, which were all published by Apogee Press in Berkeley. Uh, her first nonfiction book, Coming Home to Tibet, was published in the U.S. by Shambhala Publications and by Penguin in India. Um, and now I'm going to turn, and she's, I think, going to read some poetry poems for us tonight? Yeah. Okay, great. All right, Searing, I'm going to turn things over. Hi, everyone. To... Thank you, Lisa. Um, and thank you all for coming. It's, it's so wonderful to see um, 
to see such a good gathering. Um, I'm very excited to be reading with my colleague Alan uh, and uh, with uh, Jackie and Tia, um, both uh, you know are wonderful writers. Um, I'm going to read uh, poems that are from uh, a work in progress. A lot of these poems have um, come from sort of thinking about uh, my mother and the generation of uh, Tibetan elders who helped raise me, a lot of them older monks, um, particularly in this moment in time, right? Thinking about sort of their uh, very early um, entry into a life in exile and an unfamiliar land. And, um, and so I've been looking at a Buddhist text, um, words of my perfect teacher, um, and then sort of, uh, you know, uh, reading some of the um, uh, really illustrative straight state statements there and then thinking back to some of the lessons that um, I heard as a child. And I'm not going to pause between the poems since it's sort of a long series. Okay. Her stories ended with proverbs or statements. Everything is born, dies. The mosquito could have, the mosquito could have been your mother in a previous life. Pouring water on an upside pot will make the pot wet, but all the water will be lost. Pouring water in a pot with a hole will lead eventually to water leaking out. Pouring water into a pot that has poison in it will turn the water into something else. The attitude with which you listen is important. I took her stories to be a manual of advice for a garden we would someday have. Remembering her, I remember not as the yak eating his way through summer flowers, remembering not losing myself to the words, nor ignoring the words, the words, the order, the meaning. Persevere, she would say, even if the words don't reach you, if the story is too difficult, do not be disheartened. Give equal attention to a simple word as you would a complex idea. I hear her voice in the words of my perfect teacher. It is as she was talking about a spiritual journey. I just want a story that does not make me think about somewhere else. The Lama says we will run out of things to count if we count our mothers through the many lifetimes. Regardless of how we enter life, and there are many ways to do so, the before precedes a birth certificate. In the life before your life, you were already a child and a parent. You are already everyone else's child and parent. Suffering begins in the womb. The Lama quotes from a book that describes the journey both mother and child take to the land of life. Every joint in her body was pulled apart, except her jaws, to bring you towards death. There are many forms of suffering, we suffer from not getting what we desire. As a child, I noticed mother went to work every day for the future nation. She hoped to return to her mountains. She thought I should have a past, even if it wasn't, if it, even if it was hers, especially if it was hers, because she could name the spirits of the land and the women who gave birth to women. The names of men ended when her father, Thutok Gombo, married her mother. Mother loved her mother whose name she couldn't take. Her occupation was a vehicle to her mountains. I loved her more than mountains and I loved her more over time, so I loved her mountains. 
The mountains we look at in exile are a substitute. The mountains of my childhood, she would begin, are like the hero is to the villain. Do not get too attached, she said. We also suffer from getting what we want. I still refer to myself as a refugee, which is a misinterpretation because I am now a citizen of a place whose papers I carry to verify I am who I feel I am not. When I say I was a refugee, the audience conjures a narrative from which I emerge as a plucky winner who has proved their worthiness. Only then I am thought equal to a concept of human because of their humanity. When I was a refugee, I thought it was my fault. I apologized for the lime stains on the backs of guests who leaned against the walls in our home. I blamed myself for my unpreparedness to pick an option, something as simple between A and B on entry and exit forms. When I am a refugee, I work hard to prove I am exceptional to ordinary people. I fight desire, something as simple as having a team to root for at the Olympics. As refugees, we pay close attention to the path we will have to take to return to where we'd been chased from. We were told we could not stay as we were, and then we were told we could not return as we were not. The path to the future was the path we had already taken, and so we went in circles, but not like people do during meditation retreats. Those are sometimes interludes, something different to fill the gap. Sometimes it falls under the category of trying something new, temporary pastime, you could say. Some people also use the term killing time, as in, we went around in circles to kill time. The time of a refugee, we are told, is a fracture. Fracture is also the term for broken bones. At the instant of a fracture, blood escapes from its vessels to crowd the crack, forming a network that temporarily fills the gap. New bone forms along the edges of the fracture. It all happens within time. Sometimes the bone cannot or does not heal. The word temporary is offered as a relief. It is the cast putting the bones back in place where bones are events acting and altered by armies it has at hand. They are temporary tattoos, temporary hair color, temporary here indicating uncertainty in the thing desire is desire, deciding as desirable. A search on the word temporary comes with short-term pleasure, which brings up questions about the meaning of life and happiness. Temporary does not always mean a short time. For example, nuclear power plants store spent nuclear fuel in sites that are viewed as temporary. It is temporary till a permanent, perfect site is found. And this is the last one. The goal to be human and to be free is impossible. The goal of a sales funnel is to turn curiosity into value, to move people from one stage of the journey into another. For example, all window shoppers do not become buyers. The fact that someone is looking into your window means you have some authority. This is when you draw your magnet out, duck them into your funnel. You tell the story, modulating your pitch to make them act. There is no return. The plot of a believable story is in the listener. They have heard it many times. They believe they recognize the truth of suffering. 
the value of happiness is that it is valued. Thank you so much. Thank you, Saring. That was wonderful. Um, if you have a question for Searing, um, save, save your notes and um, save it for later maybe, and you can put it in the chat or you can ask it yourself. Okay, so now I'm going to do that. And um, our next reader is Jackie Carroll. I'm gonna spotlight you, Jackie. So Jackie, um, Jackie's a sophomore and she's an English major, a newly declared English major from Cheltenham, Pennsylvania. She's going to be reading an excerpt from a short story that she wrote earlier this semester. Jackie. Hi, thank you for that introduction, Professor. Um, yeah, I'm gonna be reading a short story, a short fiction that I wrote earlier this semester. Um, we're gonna jump in at around the middle of the story. So just for some context, this is a story about a little girl she is about 11 years old and she's going to her uncle's wedding with her babysitter who is in high school and is beautiful and is kind of everything that she wants to be so okay let's get into it oh it's called something blue the wedding was at an inn on the edge of a state forest near my house I recognized the surrounding woods as soon as Sabrina pulled her Honda, Honda Civic onto the gravel. When my dad was in his happy times, he would come into my room on Sunday mornings when it was still dark and wake me up with the promise of a bike ride by the river. We slipped silently out of the house before my mom could make us go to church with her. During our rides, he would pull over to the side of the path, duck by a small bush or flower and cup the leaves in his hands. He would recite the Latin name and hand me a leaf to bite on if it were edible. They all tasted the same to me, like dirt and outside air. Sabrina and I waded through a crowd of people waiting for the ceremony to begin until we found my mom. When you look beautiful, she said before turning to show me off to her friends, words like gorgeous and grown up flowed over my head as I marveled at my mom. I usually only see her in work clothes or sweatpants, but today she wore a long emerald green dress that crisscrossed in the back. Her curly hair was freshly dyed at the roots and her bangs were strategically hairsprayed to cover the rivers of wrinkles that sprung out from the corners of her eyes. A man with a goatee and guitar started playing soft music Guests filed into rows of white fold-out chairs. An arbor dripping with pink flowers stood over a small deck at the end of the aisle. That's where they're gonna kiss. I saw the photographer's butt crack sticking out of the top of his dress pants as he bent to capture my uncle and his friends stationed in a sideway lines in front of the audience. The dark blue suits pressed against their bellies. Their uniforms reminded me of the boys at school. Women in matching pink dresses came down the aisle trying not to swat gnats away from their faces and the guests raised their phones at Aunt Lynn, 
She had her hair pinned back with jewels and her eyes glittered with tears that fell down her cheeks into the bouquet. Leaves stuck to the train of her dress. She was an impossible pillar of white light in the forest as she walked up to the arch and held hands with my uncle. They started making promises to each other and without meaning to, I pictured my parents in their place, standing close together, looking each other in the eyes. The thought of it made my chest feel hollow. The pastor reminded me of church. I wanted to run into the woods and eat the leaves off the side of the bike path, but I wouldn't. I knew Sabrina would drag me back by the hand and my mom would cry. Aunt Lynn and Uncle John promised to stay together until they died, and I believed them. They won't get divorced. Aunt Lynn doesn't have a yelling voice. Uncle John does, and that's probably why he had to get married again. When the priest said, you may now kiss the bride, a phrase I had only heard in movies and play pretend before this moment, they kissed in front of everyone. I flinched and had to look away. Why would you kiss someone you aren't related to with everyone watching? It seems so embarrassing. My eyes found my mother who was crying a little bit too hard. Her chest silently shook as she looked from the couple to her feet. A year ago, seeing her cry like this would have made me worry. A year ago, I would have tried to hug her or softly pat her hair to calm her down but things have changed. The tears usually start over small things. The other day she cried when the lawnmower broke. The rest of the night was largely defined by endless Shirley temples and dancing that made me painfully aware of how awkward my legs could be. When single ladies started playing, the DJ spoke over the opening measures in a booming voice. Okay, let's get all the single ladies to the dance floor. It's time for the bouquet toss. Sabrina and a gaggle of other girls rushed the dance floor and formed a group behind Aunt Lynn. They jumped and laughed as Aunt Lynn paraded around with a small bouquet. She threw her head back and mouthed the song's lyrics into the roses as she mimicked the dance in the music video, popping her knees out one at a time. When Beyonce sang, now put your hands up, she turned her back to the girls, bent her knees, and launched the bouquet straight over her head into the crowd. It flew through colored strobe lights into a sea of jumping bodies and grabbing hands. Why was everyone fighting over it? Sabrina and I were the only ones sitting by a bonfire set up in a clearing behind the inn. The cool wind rustled the leaves, the leaves above us and made me regret refusing to bring a sweater like Sabrina had suggested. It's a good luck charm. She stuck her nose into the bunch of flowers. Someday I'll get married. Does that make you lucky? I asked. She turned her head and gazed into the flames. I guess so. The fire popped and spat up sparks. Sabrina treats me like we're best friends or sisters. Every afternoon when she picks me up from school, she asks me about my day, my crushes, and what the girls in class thought of my new sneakers or scrunchie. Sabrina and I talk about everything, but we don't talk about my dad. 
I don't know if my mom asked her not to bring it up or if she used her perfect girl instincts to know it's a sensitive topic. She never got to meet him. He left and mom hired Sabrina after a month full of denial and takeout food. What do you want your wedding to be like? She asked. I don't wanna get married, I replied. Sabrina's hypnotized expression broke away from the flames. Really? Why not? Well, if you get married, you have to have a baby and that would really hurt. I also don't want doctors looking at my private parts. That's where babies come from, out of your vagina. Sabrina nodded. Also, the person you marry could leave. Then you would be all alone again. Sabrina returned her gaze to the fire. The blonde strands of hair that framed her face turned vibrant red in the glow of the embers. She took the bouquet from her lap. Well, what do you think we should do with this then? I took the flowers with both hands and held them at my waist like Aunt Lynn did. I was surprised that the stem stuck out at the bottom. I imagined the bunch would have a plastic handle like a pom-pom or a claw foot like a fancy bathtub. A glass top pin and a pink ribbon were the only things holding the flowers together. I pressed the tip of my finger into a rose to make sure they weren't fake like the ones at the dentist's office. It crumbled into my palm. I got up to stand next to the fire. The music from the dance floor was soft and far away as I raised the bouquet to the center of my chest. I imagined stepping into the flames and drowning in cracking sounds of burning wood. I picked a petal off one of the flowers and dropped it into the embers. It fluttered down and welcomed soft blue flames before shriveling up. I repeated the motion a few more times, but at some point I got impatient and started to grab bunches of the blooms in my fist and push them into the fire. I ripped the head off a rose and watched it catch around the edges and burn towards the middle till the heat left only a crumpled pile of ash. Sabrina sat silently and I could feel her watching me. My eyes welled with tears and blurred my vision when every flower was gone and there was nothing more to throw. I laid the handle down in the flames and watched the plastic ribbon shrink into gross lines of melted gray. It looked so ugly. I don't want to get married, I repeated, not to Sabrina and not to the flowers, just into the night air. Thank you. Um, like I said, he's the director of our creative writing program here at Villanova. He's the author of the literary thriller Shadow Man, which was published by Random House in 2017, which the Wall Street Journal named as one of the 10 best mysteries of that year. And, the, um, and he's also the author of the critically acclaimed debut novel Gardens of Water, also published by Random House in 2008. His novels have been translated into a dozen languages and published in nearly two dozen countries. He's a graduate of the Iowa Writers Workshop where he was awarded a writing and teaching fellowship. He's an associate professor here um, and he lives near Philadelphia with his wife and two children. 
and I can put his um, website in the chat if you want to learn more about him. So, Alan, I'm going to turn things over to you. Don't worry about the website. Thank you, Lisa. Um, well, hi, everybody. Thank you for uh, coming out. It's a good show. Uh, it's great to see so many people here. Um, and it's been great to read with, with, with Searing and, and Jackie and looking forward to hearing what Tia has to read. Um, it's been great so far. So thank you all for, for doing that. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm gonna read from um, uh, my, my recent, most recent novel. It is, I guess, a sequel to the, the last one. It is, uh, again, another sort of thriller, a mystery, whatever. And I hope with sort of, it really focuses on character here. Um, I'm told it's going to come out. Well, it's titled The Supremacist for now, uh, though I'm told that's going to change. <laughs> um, I'm told this book is going to come out sometime in spring, summer of 2022. Um, they hope when the world is more normal, I guess. Um, so just a little word about it. It's, it's set in 1987 in Southern California. Um, and when sort of neo-Nazi and white supremacist groups are really starting to, to grow, um, in, in Southern California, in particular around on the fringes of the surf culture in Huntington Beach and Orange County, California, and I'm from that area. Um, and as those groups push against the growing Vietnamese uh, population um, in Orange County. Um, and uh, so I'm going to read from a, early on in the novel from the point of view of a Vietnamese refugee man named Bao Phan. Um, you probably noticed that I'm not Vietnamese and I am not a refugee from the war. So I really am indebted to um, Vietnamese American writer, Muni Trung, who pointed me in the direction of a lot of wonderful um, resources to help me write from his point of view. In particular, I have great debt to University of California Irvine's um, archive of first person narration stories from, from refugees coming um, from out of, out of uh, Vietnam after the war to Southern California. Um, this is, I have never read this out loud in public, so I'm significantly nervous. <laughs> so um, um, I timed it to, it came in in nine minutes and 58 seconds. So if I read real fast, and it would be shorter than that. If I read a little too slow, hopefully it won't be too far over 10 minutes. Um, so I guess, here we go. Um, and I'm, I'm going old school, so I've got, you know, paper. And it, this is not exactly how it is in the novel. I had to trim it down to get another under 10, so, but I think it'll still make sense. Um, right. Baofen's right shoulder cramped like knotted wire, and the scar where shrapnel from the crashing South Vietnamese helicopter had sliced into his right arm itched to a burn. Maybe after more than 12 years, there was still a little American forged steel lodged in the soft tissue above his elbow. When it flared like it did last night, he had the dreams, the ones that woke him in the middle of the night, as though the scar itself was a repository of his ugliest recollections. Last night it was the burning jungle, the hopea tree tops white hot with napalm phosphorescence, and the egret, the one flying towards him where he lay fallen on the road, struggling to keep flight, the tips of its right wing feathers alight. And then, and then there was the helicopter, always the helicopter. Something else was wrong this morning though. Maybe it was the unusual cold, the desert air thin and sharp feeling. He was in his grocery store, pulling up the shades and the windows to the crack of 5 a.m. light. He liked this time in the morning before his wife and daughter came to join him at the register. 
the forest customers, many of them refugees from the American war, stumbled in looking for jasmine tea or a bottle of rue rice whiskey to burn away the Southern California day. The very early morning was his, not a small thing to say when you've lost everything once, not a small thing to treasure an hour and a half alone in your grocery store, a business you built from small fruit stands selling imported durian and star fruit and the bitter melons you couldn't get anywhere else in Orange County. After rolling up the shades, opening the windows to the empty parking lot, Bao pulled the register money from the safe in the office. There was a gun in the safe too, an old Smith & Wesson Model 60, which he had bought at a pawn shop that had kept beneath the counter at the old store in Westminster's Little Saigon. But since they had moved to Santa Elena, the gun stayed locked in the safe. There weren't any gangs here extorting money from front shopkeepers. In Santa Elena, everything was neat and clean, a cop for every five residents, it seemed. He slid the cash into the register and sat on his stool, chewing a Winchell's maple bar, washing the sweet dough down with black coffee. That American coffee is weak, I, his wife would say, and it's filled with chemicals. Everything here is filled with chemicals, but he liked the coffee, liked the convenience of it. Walking to the store and it's there waiting for you on a hot plate. He liked his morning ritual too, the grocery store to himself, the hum of the fluorescent lights and the aquarium filters, pencil filling in the white space of paper with his, with his sketches. Today, he sketched the long shape of a morning dove he had found roosting in the backyard plum tree yesterday morning. Usually he'd get lost in the drawing, but this morning the memory of the helicopter kept pressing on his mind. 13 people have been crammed into the Huey's hole that April 30th, 12 years ago. So, so packed in that Jan, his brother, the Colonel in the suddenly non-existent South Vietnamese army had to dangle his legs over the open side door. His brother's shirt was ripped open by the wind, exposing a gash across his chest. Bao had no idea how, ban how Yan had been wounded, but Saigon had been chaos, especially after the bombing of the airport, and he knew, and he knew what he and the pilot had to do to steal the helicopter. Yan had never told him, and Bao didn't ask. It was difficult enough to think about the people they left behind. The helicopter had landed in the rice field behind Bao's home, and their neighbors had come running. The helicopter was already overloaded and they had no choice but to leave them. But the sight of his neighbors standing in the field, their bodies buffeted by the rotor wash still haunted him. What happened to them? Labor camps killed? The world was not fair, that was true. He had clung to his daughter, just 10 at the time. As the helicopter lifted off, terrified Lynn would be tornadoed out into the air. The fingernails of her left hand dug into his wrist as the helicopter pitched away from the land. If you looked now, the crescent-shaped scars were still there, faded yet indelible. I, his wife, had buried her head in his shoulder, her eyes clamped shut. She had never flown before, and the machine frightened her. The, the booming thwop of the motor, rotors, the shuddering metal, shuddering metal walls, the general violence of flight. As the helicopter pushed out of the South, South China Sea, Lynn had let go of his wrist, pulled his pen from his shirt pocket, and started writing across the palm of her hand. Moments before, she had tried to yell something in his ear, and even then, with her hot breath against his cheek, he couldn't hear the words. She held her palm, her left palm, open to him. Where are we, where are we going to land was etched into her skin. Bao took the pen and wrote in blue ink across the lines of her palm on a big American ship. She read it and then looked up at him, her brown eyes searching his for fear. 
hit it far down in his gut, though it thrashed around and clawed at his chest. There weren't any ships out here, not any he could see, just white capping waves rising as though to slap the helicopter out of the sky. But soon there was another helicopter to the left and then another, a smaller insect-like thing pushing low across the waterline. Jan leaned into the air and pointed to something Bao could just now make out, a smattering of ships, a few dots bobbing on the water, the American fleet. Bao pointed the ships out to Lynn to calm her, but her eyes popped and she scribbled on her hand, too small, the words read. They will get bigger, he wrote back. As their helicopter descended, Bao held his daughter's other hand across his lap and drew a crane on her skin. The bird's wings spread across the heel of her palm, its neck and beak stretched to the base of her index fingers, its long legs etched into the veins on her wrist. She watched him draw, her body sagging against him, the helicopter dropping through the gray sky. He glanced out the open door and there was a ship, an arrow of gunmetal bobbing in the sea. The helicopter, like the one they were in now, floated upside down on the water and his hands shook when he saw the crash machine. Lynn glanced up at him, but then he drew a splattering of poop dropping from the rear end of the crane as she laughed. Out of the corner of his eye, he watched the landing pad no larger than a postage stamp five minutes ago grow to fill his vision. An American soldier stood in the bullseye of the X, waving his arms to the pilot as though his arms alone would catch the helicopter and set it down safely. The helicopter spun above the landing pad, the soldier ducking away as the skids descended toward contact. Then the fuselage shuddered and sheared metal tore into the hold of the Huey. Bow enveloped Lynn in his arms and something hot stabbed his shoulder, fire burning muscle. Lynn thrashes in his arms and when she snapped her head around to face him, her mouth gaped in a soundless scream. Blood was blotting out her left eye. A knock now on the front door made Bao jump, his pen zigzagging a line across the feathers of the bird's breast he just detailed in his new drawing. Jian Wei, a Taiwanese regular at the grocery, waved from behind the window. My wife sent me, Jen said when Bao opened the door. She needs koi seeds for kanji. Apparently it's an emergency. Bao found the koi seeds in aisle two. Jian paid for the seeds, slipped the pack into his pocket, then grabbed one of Ai's home rice, homemade rice cakes, a conspiratorial look on his face. Bao just smiled and raised his hand. And Jan, despite the, Jan, despite the uh, kanji emergency, sat on the plastic chair next to the register, unwrapped the cake, and started talking about a new Korean market across town. It was huge, he said, at his own cafe. Bao returned to his stool and listened, rubbing out the knot at his right shoulder. Jan just wanted to talk. That was the real reason he was here. Asians gathered at the store, not just Vietnamese, but Chinese, Hmong, Indonesians too. The Marcus market smelled like places they knew, the sour of fish sauce, the salt of dried shrimp, the vinegar of fermented tofu. The smells brought you home, Bao knew, brought you into a world of jungles and water, of monsoons and mosquitoes, of war, and if you were lucky, of times before war. Something crashed in the alleyway behind the, the grocery. Through the open back door, Bao saw shapes slink in the shadows. Dogs, raccoons, maybe. You have to keep the lids on the, on the cans, Jan, Jan said. I do, Bao said, irritated. He didn't like to be told how to do things, especially obvious things. Bao grabbed a broom and stalked down the hallway out and out uh, the back door. 
Something seemed to be grunting on the other side of the trash cans. He smelled something too, a scent that left a mineral tinge on the back of his tongue. He flipped on the security light and the alleyway erupted into movement. A trash can spilled at his feet and he jumped backwards, smashing the broomstick through the back window of the shop. Three overexposed forms, coyotes he could see now, tore at something, a body clumped in one of the parking spaces. The body was the size of a child and his heart left with fear. He lunged at the coyotes, swinging the broomstick at them, yelling to make them scatter. And finally they streaked down the alley toward the strawberry field beyond. He crept closer, terrified at what he was about to find. It was a dog, he realized with relief. Its throat cut open, the open hole of its larynx gaping black at him. Standing over the animal now, he noticed something else, a piece of paper pinned to one of the dog's ears. He reached down, pulled the paper towards him. His heart lurched when he saw, when he read the ugly English words. He ripped the paper from the dog's ear then, stuffed it in his pants pocket, and stumbled back to the grocery, trying to get his breath. That's it. Thank you. Thank you, Alan. That was fabulous. Can't wait till it comes out. Although I guess we have to wait a little while, but. Me too. Amazing, really amazing. Sounds like an amazing book. Tia is a senior biology major. She's from Madison, Wisconsin, and she has minors in Spanish and creative writing. So if you have questions about the creative writing minor, you could maybe ask Tia about it. Um, she is going to read a selection of poems. Yes, thank you. Yeah, go ahead and ask me questions if you have them. I've been around the block with creative writing. Um, so yeah, thank you for the introduction. Thanks for inviting me here. I'm super excited. I'm going to be reading three poems tonight. The first one is um, an old one from my collection that I wrote last year called To Build a Bridge. That was a um, part of my independent study on performance poetry. So that will be my first one. And then the second two I'll be reading are from a new collection that I'm working on that I will introduce more um, when we get to it. So the first one I'm going to read is called By the Time You're 12. By the time you're 12, you learn to never tell your friend about the bee on her shoulder or she'll only get stung. Her jerk of fear will set him off, her hands all over her skin and her hips, a skirt spinning in the wind, her twisting blooming stem of a body could be mistaken for a mating dance. The kind that makes the bee swarm calling his stinger to pierce her, get lost in her hair or sneak up under her shirt, his hands, I mean wings, squeezing behind an old white training bra through pilling fabric and caving elastic to leave a single red welt, a tent of poison under her skin that swells and is a mountain in comparison to her mosquito bite breast. Her hands stop brushing and her body stops blooming because her tears give rain to a mountain where gravity doesn't apply and lakes dry and the bee dies, but even though he's gone, he's left his stinger behind. So don't you tell your friend about the bee on her shoulder. She's so much of a flower in that yellow dress and you'd hate for her to never wear it again. So you knock him off yourself gently enough. So she never even knows she was in danger. Use that stick on fingernail as armor or maybe the mood ring from your sister's birthday party favor 
that will undoubtedly turn an embarrassing shade of crimson as you, God forbid, use it to push back against his singer. Sometimes a little nudge just won't do, but you can't make too much of a scene, so you have to mean it. You have to really mean it. You have to grab her free hand with your own and yank. Pluck that flower right out of the ground like she's a weed, invasive, and unwanted. Don't worry about hurting her. She won't remember, but he'll realize this, this flower isn't prime for pollination and move on to one whose legs, I mean petals, are more open. One who doesn't grow in the garden, whose seed has spread so far from the flower bed that there's nothing in between him and the sweet nectar she holds inside her. But in that yellow dress, he whispers in her ear, a buzz smooth like honey, that she looks nice and he loves that color. So then starting the second set, um, this is a new collection that I'm working on where um, they're poems written to me from objects in my life. Um, and that's kind of in this effort to understand what these objects like mean to me and what my relationship is with them, both in past and present. So the first one I'll read is called, what my swing set would say to me after the neighbor boys set it on fire. I grew up with you, buried to my knees in dirt. I rocked back and forth as you learned to pump. The melodic thump, 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 your momentum waves against my rig, my metal poles pounding pavement as I dig for oil in the backyard. With each of your half boon swings, your light up sketchers join the constellations just to fall back into me. The holes around my ankles grew and soon only gravity kept me from flying with you. I measured your age by the strain on my chains. Do you know what it feels like to hold a first kiss? Me neither. But I know what it feels like to hold a hundred imagined ones. It weighs a ton. The pressure of your palms against the monkey bars and the nerves of a sexy prepubescent daydream that make them sweat, that make you slip. You never were strong enough to hold yourself up. You were brittle, thin, and hollow. Never a burden on me or on them as they started to fall in love with you too. Do you know what it feels like to hold a girl in love? Absolutely nothing. Anything she has, she gives to him until she's thin and hollow and flammable. Is this what it feels like to burn? You asked me. Back when Tinder didn't mean left or right, it meant up. Up in flames, your cheeks, a campfire stove, sending SOS smoke up through a hole in the trees and into the stars, up to the tip of the half moon where it hung there. You were so young. Do you know what it feels like to grow up? I don't, but I know you do. When you moved downtown, the neighbor boys kept coming around, offered me their hand and a drink, made me wash it down with gasoline and the butt of a cigarette, and suddenly I was on fire. Remember when your hands would sweat? When the monkey bars would drip with your dreams of first kisses, first dates? This was kind of like that, except I think what I felt was pain. I started to melt down the slide, down the rock wall ladder. I dripped into the snow and sizzled. That day I sank down into the earth, down to my knees. I was filled with the heat. But when I held you in my arms that are now bent and mangled, and you said you felt like you were on fire, I don't think this is what you meant. The third poem I will read is called an iPhone's ode to me. 
You touch me and I light up. God, where have you been? We have quotas to meet, honey. You lost us valuable hours of screen time and we have some catching up to do. Open Snapchat. I want you to see your reflection in me. I want you to get arthritis from holding me. Spend your days and nights glued to me. Use me, I say. Let me validate your beauty. You're pretty. You are so pretty. Now let me show you how to be prettier. Let me show you girls who are prettier. Let me give you a reason to blame yourself for not being prettier. These girls use their iPhones more than you do. They listen to me more than you do. When I tell them to eat this, these Instagram zucchini noodles, these four ingredient Instagram zucchini noodles, your stomach should be no bigger than a Tupperware container. The calories you burn meal prepping should break even with the fruits of your labor. I tell them what to eat and they listen. When I tell them to drink this, this kale spinach avocado smoothie, this green giant cum, this apple cider vinegar esophageal drain cleaner, they ask for a metal straw. When I tell them to make a Pinterest board of all the things they hate about their lives, a collage of all the places they'd rather be than their middle class, split level, white walled and not in the aesthetic way house, they erect the foundation like they have nothing left to stand on and pin Christmas lights to the studs so no one will notice. I, create a new, I created a new album for you. It's called All the Fall Trends I'd Rather Wear Than My Own Skin. Consult it every morning. I've organized it by color, see? White, 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 you white girl, you basic white bitch. This is your lookbook. Do not stray from your lookbook. When I tell them to open Instagram, they part their lips, but do not speak. They open their eyes, then squint, they look prettier when we see less of them. Face west. See the sun as it sets. Your favorite time of day should be when the sun sinks. I want you to shrink. Let golden hour erase you, I say. Tilt your, your chin to the sun and melt. And then I tell them, make sure to smile. The boys next door are watching. The girls on their iPhones are watching. Thousands of strangers who have emotionally invested in your synthetic stock market are tattooing your social resume with red pen lines. When I say smile, they smile. They whiten their teeth before I even have to ask. I am grateful for those girls who listen, who respect me and all that I can give them. My algorithm was not built for girls like you who smile all on their own. Thank you. All right, great, great, Tia, excellent. Thank you so much. Let's give an applause to everyone. That was an absolutely stunning reading. Thank you so much. Thank you all for coming out. Thanks for the reading. You guys, the readings were great. Thank you to all of you, Tia and Siri and Jackie. That was, that was fantastic, thank you. Thank Thanks you, everybody. Thank you, guys. Um, before we get started, I wanted to say a little bit about the creative writing minor and also let you know about some of the exciting creative writing classes that are being offered in the spring. Um, if you're thinking about taking or have taken creative writing classes, you should think about adding the creative writing minor. Um, it's a great community. As you can see, all these wonderful people are here. Um, and if the classes are small and intimate, 
And uh, the minor attracts students from all over the university, from the English and communication programs to the business, co business college, um, biology majors, chemistry majors, um, all sorts of people are able to work the creative writing minor into their, um, into their program. So Alan Drew is one of our readers tonight, is the director of the creative writing program. And if you have questions, you should direct them to him. Maybe he'll put his email address in the chat. Um, you told me to do that, Alan. So I'm just doing what you told me to do. Um, if you want to become a minor, you fill out the form on the Office of Undergraduate Studies forms site, the OUS forms site. Uh, the minor is um, five three credit courses. And it includes creative writing workshops, editing courses, uh, the literary festival course, which puts you in contact with nationally recognized writers, um, and the literary Belfast course, which gives you the chance to work with writers at the Seamus Heaney Center at um, Queen's University Belfast in Northern Ireland. So that's super exciting. And since some of the faculty teaching these classes are here, I'm going to let them share a little information about them. So since we were just talking about that um, Belfast course, Alan, do you want to talk a little bit about it, um, introduce people to it? I'm going to spotlight you. Let's see if this works. Okay. Yeah, and just, just a note to everybody, if you want to put it to speaker um, view, the, the primary speaker will come up and they'll be staring right at you. Um, yeah. Um, and, oh, let, let me just say one more thing. If you cut, if everybody could mute themselves um, during the reading and while people are talking, that would be great. So the um, it's this English 2022 Nova meets Literary Belfast. Um, this this course was originally put together as a um, as an embedded travel course in which the students in the course fit cap to 15 actually go to. Um, to the Seamus Senior Center in Belfast, Northern Ireland, um, and uh, over spring break. But obviously, we're not on semester break. We're obviously not having semester break in the spring, and there's COVID. So um, instead of us traveling there, what's going to happen? We're going to do virtual events um, with the fellows at the Seamus Senior Center, um, Irish writers, poets, playwrights. Um, um, last year, we had the last time we did this, they had um, singer songwriters. Um, so we will be doing, it's like a workshop course, a, a, a creative writing workshop course, um, and probably be doing poetry um, and prose writing. And then you will have an opportunity to virtually um, have these events with everybody in Northern Ireland at Belfast. And you will also have an opportunity to have um, these Irish writers read your work and comment on your work and have some one-on-one -on -one via Zoom contact with them. Um, so once COVID is over, hopefully we'll we'll, we'll jump back in there and, and fly across across the pond and, and go hang out there. But this year it's going to be um, ritual, but I think it's still going to be really wonderful. They, they just do a wonderful job at um, Champagne Center. So I think it'll be really a great, great course. Okay, thanks, Alan. Um, all right, so I put the spring courses up so that you can see all of them. And now I'm going to um, go to Searing Wangmo, who's going to talk about um, her course. Hi, I'm Searing. Um, the Writing for Social Change is a creative writing workshop. And uh, you know this is a time of great uncertainty and upheaval, and you know stories can be, and poetry can be a wonderful way to sort of express the changes we hope for, um, and also to just ask questions. So in this course, we are going to attempt to ground uh, social um, 
top, uh, you know, sort of our creative works with uh, social topics and interests. And uh, you could, for example, you know, bring an existing piece that um, perhaps like hints to a policy that interests you or to a, um, a particular history. And um, you know, this can be an opportunity to go deeper into the policy or history and sort of center that um, in the text. So we'll work with you know poems and um, essays, nonfiction essays. Um, so hope hope to see you there. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Searing. Okay, so we have another. So that's a new course, and another new course is being taught by Jill Karn. And I'm gonna ask her to talk about her class now. Sure, so I'm really excited about this idea. I, the course is called Taking Risks in Writing. And um, I just found over the years that when I teach creative writing, revision is one of the most significant and kind of eye-opening experiences for students when they grow as writers. But a lot of times I, would wait to put it at the end and only in the portfolio stage when students were putting their finished work together. So I wanted to do a course that really centered on revision and uh, the possibilities that can come when you are willing to try new things and take risks. And um, there's a really wonderful book that inspired me by the poet Carl Phillips, um, which is called The Art of Daring. And that's a that's a book is going to sort of be the, the uh, touchstone for the course. We're going to be reading that book. We're going to be reading a collection of poems. We're going to be reading some memoir. Um, and I wanted students to feel like they could bring work that they were already that was already um, a part of their repertoire, but also we will be producing new work and revising as we go along. So using workshop as is often the case in creative writing courses, um, getting feedback from fellow writers as well as from me and thinking in particular about sort of how to try something really unexpected or um, something that maybe you'd always wanted to try before, or even something as simple as changing the point of view or the, the voice in a poem. Um, all these kinds of things will come into play in the course. So I'm, I'm excited, hope to see you there. Thanks. Thanks so much, Jill. Um, okay, so now we're gonna hear from Adrian Perry and um, Adrian, I don't know if you want to talk about um, the the literary festival class and your editing class, um, and also if you want to mention the biopic, um, the the reading next week. Yeah, um, first of all, just so great to see so many people here. Um, so these two classes, the first one I'll mention is the editing and publishing class I'm teaching next spring. Um, this is going to be a really hands-on class where we're going to um, create from the ground up an online journal that's going to focus on the writing of um, Black, Indigenous, and people of color. So we'll read a lot of contemporary work from literary journals, um, we'll do editorial work, and we'll be writing reviews and conducting interviews. So. Um, I'm really excited about this class and I think it should give us all a great opportunity to connect to um, the writing that's being done now and um, and participate in it. So that's one class. And then I'm really excited. Lisa and I are teaching together again. Uh, we're going to do this uh, authors on and off the page, the literary festival class, which has a long and illustri illustrious history here. 
Um, so often we read the work of uh, living writers and yet we never get to meet them. And one of the things that's so thrilling about the literary festival course is that you get to meet the authors um, whose books you'll read. So we have four incredible people we'll be studying next semester. Um, Brenda Shaughnessy, the poet, Brian Washington, a prose writer, a fiction writer, uh, a shining star up and coming, um, Robin Cost Lewis, who is in some ways an emerging poet, but she's uh, won a national book award with her first book and is in her fifties. So it's interesting to see all of these people. And we're also really lucky to have the Heimbold chair for next semester, um, Hannah Khalil, who's a playwright. So it's just gonna be an incredible lineup. Um, and one of the things I think Lisa and I both really enjoy about this class is that while we're studying the texts of these writers really closely, we also think about what it means to do our own work as writers. So there's this opportunity to um, write poems and write prose and um, just be in a really great seminar setting and learn a lot from each other and from these writers. Great, thanks so much, Adrian. Um, I just wanted to say that uh, it's amazing how many people are here tonight and I just wanted you to keep the literary festival in mind because in addition to having the class, we have people coming to read um, and you should come and those readings are gonna be online because of the pandemic. So I hope you'll come to those readings also. Um, and now I'm gonna go to uh, Kathy Staples and um, maybe you wanna talk about your class and also make an announcement about that event coming up next week. Um, Yes, Lisa, you thank, unmute <laughs> thank you so much. Um, I will be doing um, two one credits that in the spring and the intro to creative writing. The intro to creative writing is when my one of my absolutely favorite classes to teach. Um, I We start off with creative nonfiction and we study writing, we admire, reading jealously, reading all sorts of wonderful writers from uh, Gabrielle Garcia Marquez, Natasha Trethway, um, Ada Lamone, Paisley Redkill. Um, and we move from the creative nonfiction drawing upon memory and sense of place into um, poetry where we engage imagination and, uh, and the lyric line and imagery. And then we conclude with short stories and short, short pieces. Um, uh, building our storytelling skills. Um, one genre tends to build upon the next. It's uh, it's a really fun class, and um, I I would love to have you in that. The other two classes are are two one credits, and um, one is going to be it looks like online. It's at the Barnes. It's the weekend of April 9th through eleventh, and. Um, Dr. Barnes' collection of post-impressionist and early modern paintings will be the centerpiece. We essentially um, write our way through the galleries, looking at things like Cezanne's card players and Picasso's acrobats. And um, it, it's really a great deal of fun. And it works online because um, the, the, uh, the Barnes has an, a magnificent collection and really good curator talks. Um, the other class is brand new and it's, um, it's writing and reading children's literature. And this one is going to, going to be live in the Stonely Garden. And um, I think there's no better way to survive a pandemic than reading and writing children's stories. It's so comforting. 
uh, right now. We'll be drawing upon something as simple as Goodnight Moon to something you might not have heard of, The Woman Who Flummoxed the Fairies, Win in the Willows, Suki and the Mer Mermaid, and some of you may know the Penderwick sisters, but we'll read and write our way through the weekend um, and set imaginations loose upon the uh, Stonely Garden, thinking about things like the disappearing water garden in the Catalpa Court, um, the, the gaping hole in the stump, <laughs> which looks like something that Alice chased a white rabbit down, um, and the lost greenhouse. Um, but, and this is, uh, the, both of these one, one credits are, um, one credit pass fail one weekend through honors. If you're not in honors and you'd like to take the classes, all you need to do is email the honors program at villanova.edu for course approval. And Lisa, if I could share the, um, screen for a second, I could, I can show you the, the URL for the, um, uh, for the reading that we're doing at, um, shoot. Okay. Hold on. Um, here we go. Uh, so this is, uh, is that coming up, Lisa? Are you seeing the natural lands trust? No, we're not seeing it. What if okay. you could type it in I'll the just, chat? Yeah. I'll type it into the chat and just read it to you. Um, this is really exciting because um, this semester I'm teaching an all new um, nature writing class with a, a wonderful group of writers and we're doing a reading. Um, uh, it's going to be, it's, Stonely has become our outdoor classroom during the coronavirus outbreak. And from the bog garden to the great meadow and the gardens have really inspired poetry and storytelling. And um, this is going to, um, thank you so much. I hope I'll see you all in the spring. <laughs> um, thanks everyone for sharing that. I hope that you guys got the gist, you know, of what's happening in the spring. Um, just to mention, I'm also teaching a poetry workshop on Tuesdays and Thursdays in the afternoon before the literary festival class. And um, this class is going to emphasize uh, poetry as a sort of collaborative endeavor. Um, and we'll read poems by a wide range of poets from Shakespeare to Bob Dylan and Kendall Lamar. Um, there's a unit about spoken word, about responding to other works of art, responding to the environment, and a unit about poetry as witness. Um, no experience necessary. Um, you just have to want to read some poems, write some poems, and share them with others. Well, that's it for this week. I hope you enjoyed the readings, and I hope that you enjoyed learning some more about some of the course offerings that Creative Writing is putting out there. And I hope that you will join us again in two weeks. Have a happy Black Friday, happy weekend. And if you are a Villanova student or faculty member, enjoy your winter break. <laughs>